0: Well good morning to you, Psalm 121, 1, I will lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? When you look to the mountains, what do you see? I grew up in Denver, Colorado, and Denver sits at the base of the front range of the majestic Rocky Mountains. I've been looking at mountains my entire life, but recently I'm seeing them differently. There are 58 peaks in Colorado that rise 14,000 feet above sea level. They're known as the Colorado 14ers. And people come from all over the world to climb Colorado's mountains. And until last year, even though I had grown up in Colorado, I had never been on the summit of one of Colorado's 14ers. And so, I started, and in the last year I've been able to summit a dozen of Colorado's 14ers. And you may ask, why? Uh, There are days when I'm grinding up a mountain where I ask the same. The views are spectacular at the top. They're breathtaking. There is definitely a sense of accomplishment in getting to a summit. But for me, the reason I started climbing Colorado 14ers was training. Because I had my eye set on another mountain. Since the time that we worked in Ethiopia many, many years ago, I've always had it in the back of my mind that I would like to try to climb Africa's mountain, Mount Kilimanjaro. At 19,341 feet, it's the tallest peak in Africa, and it's also the tallest freestanding mountain in the world. So this time, next week, My son will be joining me. We're going down to Tanzania, and we will attempt to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And again, I think it's a good question, why? Why would you climb that mountain? Uh, Maybe it's my attempt to just push back on my own aging process. Um, I made this decision last year about this time when at 59 years old, it struck me, you're turning 60 years old next year. And it's like, wow. Uh, Maybe it's my attempt to freeze in time a father-son relationship that is rapidly changing as he moves into adulthood and I realize Our relationship, it's not going to take the the same shape. It's never going to be the same again. So maybe it has something to do with that. Maybe I still have something to prove to myself if no one else. Whatever the why, I know for me it's more than just standing on the top of a tall rock. Mark Whitman, in his Mount Kilimanjaro, A Trekker's Guide to the Summit, surveys books that have been written on Kilimanjaro, and he notes this. In researching the list of Kilimanjaro books, I discovered one thing that unites all of them. Each book provides a story much greater than the triumph of standing on the roof of Africa. Each book is about people who set out on a journey to conquer more than the summit of Kilimanjaro. They set out to conquer a personal summit. And here is where that mountain becomes metaphor. What does it stand for? What does it symbolize? Why am I doing this? Mountains are obvious, but I think fitting metaphors for our life experience. We often use them to describe how we live life and especially the challenges of life, those mountains that we face, if you will. So let me ask you, what mountains are you facing? See I believe that this room, I believe that our lives, they're a mountain range. They're filled with peaks, challenges, obstacles, experiences that we face day after day after day. What peaks in your life experience remain unconquered? Can you identify right now in your life some personal summit? When you look to the mountains, what do you see? Uh, Today I would like for us to take a short trek into Scripture. Uh, Think about this with me if, if you would. One might say that mountains... Provide the literal geographic backdrop for the most significant events that shape our faith. Beginning on Horeb, moving to Mount Sinai, Mount Carmel, the Mount of Olives, Mount Calvary. But Scripture also uses mountains as metaphor to talk about how we experience life. In fact, Jesus tells us that our faith can move mountains. And so join me, if you would, open your Bibles to Luke chapter nine, and I would like for us to spend just a little bit of time on the mountain. Luke chapter nine, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 28. And could I ask you just to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word, beginning with Luke chapter 28. Now, about eight days after, saying, after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men who stood with him, And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, "'Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child.' And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father, and they were all astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives him, whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the for he who is least among you is the one who is great. And John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we told him to stop, because he does not follow us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And then verse fifty one. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples John and James saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. May God grant us eyes to see his heart through his word. And God's people said, amen. You may be seated. When you look at that narrative You'll find that it breaks down into four movements. Each one, I think, provides an opportunity to shape the way that we see. When you look at the mountains, what do you see? Before we look at those individually, which we'll do in just a moment, what I want us to do is look at the terrain, look at the trajectory of this passage. Because it does begin on a mountain. Jesus calls um, several of his disciples up to the mountain. And there is something that he definitely wants them to see. And then they come down from the mountain. But what I want you to notice is that this is not just random wandering. Jesus is not wandering. He is not lost. He goes to the mountain for a purpose. He comes down from the mountain for a purpose. He's not just hiking 14ers for the sake of what does it look like at the top. He's, he has a mission. He is on track. And this passage helps us to see that We begin on the mountain, we come down from the mountain, and you'll notice that when Jesus is on the mountain, he's talking with Moses and Elijah, and what are they talking about? They're talking about where Jesus is going. They're talking about his departure. They're talking about his trek to Jerusalem. Jesus is on a mountain. When he comes down from that mountain, he's on his way to another mountain. Later in the text... The disciples not fully capturing what Jesus is doing. He tries to help them understand it. In a short time, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus knows where he's going. He's headed for a mountain. And then in verse 51, you have one of the most intentional um, texts in the New Testament about the focus of Jesus, the resoluteness of Jesus. He is intent on fulfilling his mission. He is on track. He is on his way to Jerusalem and specifically to Calvary. And on the way, there are things that he wants his disciples and us to see. So let's look at the first of those. And it comes beginning in verse 28 where Jesus invites several of his disciples to join him on the mountain. Again, it's not just a day hike. It's not just a pleasure trip. He has something very specific in mind. And so he invites them on the mountain. And what does he want them to see? In this experience, Jesus reveals to his disciples just a glimpse Just a a small window, opening up a window on his glory. Now obviously the disciples are experiencing that this man is like no one else we know. But Jesus is trying to help them see, get pictures into who he truly is. And so he invites them to join him on this mount of transfiguration. And he changes. It tells us that his appearance changes, that the look, the appearance of his face is actually transformed, that his clothing becomes dazzling white. Can you imagine standing in the presence of one, experiencing such a transformation? He's helping them to see his glory. He wants to invite them in to something that is far beyond their their experience. This is a very curious passage to me. Um, Moses and Elijah. Why are Moses and Elijah joining Jesus on this Mount of Transfiguration? Maybe think of it this way. Moses and Elijah have been on the mountain before. This is not their first time. You remember Moses, his experience on Mount Horeb. And he comes upon a a bush that is burning, but it's not being consumed. And Moses discovers soon that he is on sacred ground, that he is in the very presence of God himself. And immediately, Moses' objections start. And what does God tell him? Moses, this is not about you. This mountain, it's not about you. you need to discover who I am. And that knowledge would take Moses through his objections and it would take him to another mountain where he stood on Mount Sinai and God would reveal his heart and his plan for his people under the old covenant. Moses had been on the mountain before. He had seen something of the glory of God. And likewise, Elijah... Elijah had stood on that mountain. He had seen something of God's glory as God empowered him to overcome the prophets of Baal. But you'll remember even after that amazing experience that Elijah went down from that mountain, and he still had questions. He still struggled. And so God called him again, once again, to Mount Horeb to remind him of his presence. And it didn't come in a... A light show or a thunderstorm, it came in God's still small voice. And I think there's something that Jesus wants his disciples to see, and he wants us to see it. And it's just, even if it's just a little bit opening up, something that takes us beyond our experience and helps us to see the glory of Christ, the glory of God Almighty. But it's curious in this passage, you have Moses and Elijah, and you have Jesus revealing his glory, and who's doing the talking? Who's doing the talking in this narrative? It's Peter. Just waking up. Oh, this is good. Master. Let's do this. This is what I think we should do. I think we should do tents. Let's do tents. We'll do one for you and we'll do one for Moses and we'll do one for Elijah. You've got Moses, Elijah, and Jesus in his glory and Peter still thinks he's the smartest man on the mountain. All filled with his ideas what should happen. And God just interrupts him, right? It's like Peter This is my son listen to him Here's the amazing thing and our first observation principle from this passage here's the thing that's amazing to me I'm Peter I'm Peter I look at the challenges of life. I look at the things that I just wonder, how is that ever gonna happen? And usually what I'm preoccupied with are my ideas. Well, Lord, maybe we could do this or maybe we should do that. Is anyone else here this morning like Peter, like me, Lose sleep at night wondering, how am I going to get through this? How are we going to figure this out? How do we ascend this mountain? See, when we see the mountains through the eyes of our ideas, what we miss in that moment is the glory of Christ. And it's the very thing that Jesus wants us to see. He wants us to see His glory. He wants us to see beyond whatever ideas or thoughts or calculations we bring to any situation. But when we see the mountains through the eyes of our ideas, we miss the glory of Christ. And you may ask, well, how does that even happen? Because like I haven't experienced many mountaintop experiences like that in my life. I haven't seen the revealing of Christ's face and clothes in the way that they did. How are we supposed to navigate through that? And I'm not exactly sure, but I think the text at least points us in the right direction. Maybe the first step is just to talk less. Spend less time trying to work it out, figure it out, talk it out, and listen. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Perhaps we just need to pause in those moments and allow ourselves to take in the glory of Christ in the moment. I think there's a second movement, a second thing that Jesus wants to help his disciples see in this passage as they look at the mountains. Notice that in verse 28, they are on the mountain, but then they descend from the mountain. And this is always the way that life is. In fact, we use this very language. We talk about how, well, you can't live on the mountaintop. You can't uh, You can't maintain that mountaintop experience. You have to come back to life. You have to come back down to the valley. You have to come back down to reality. And this is the way that we live life. We don't live it peak to peak. We live it coming down from the mountain. And what do you experience when you come down from the mountain? What you experience are the challenges. You experience the realities of life. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. They have barely got down from the mountain, and there's an individual who brings his child, his son, to Jesus. And this child is haunted. It's tormented by a demon. And he cries out to Jesus, and he says, heal my son. It's my only child. And this demon will not, will not leave him. But notice in this text, this is not the first time that this individual has brought his child. In fact, he says, and I also brought him to your disciples. And I asked them to heal him. But they could not. And then Jesus uses very strong language. I'm not sure that I fully understand it. Bring the boy to me when Jesus restores him, casts out the demon, gives him back to his father. It's evident that God, that Christ gives us ability. He gives us gifts. Some in common, some unique. He gives us resources. He gives us power, if you will. Clearly, in other texts in the Gospels, the disciples exercise that power to heal, to cast out demons. We're told, amazingly, even to raise the dead. They had power, but they did not have infinite power. Their power had limitations. Their abilities reached an end. They got to a place where, in the words of this text, they faced something that they could not overcome. And I don't know how you're wired, but the way that I'm wired is I'm going to bring everything that I have, everything in my arsenal, to try to overcome the darkness around me, including in me, But more often than not, what I find is that I quickly reach my end. I can't. I can't. And here's what I think Jesus would have us see. When we see the mountains through the eyes of our ability, we miss the power of Christ. We miss the power of Christ. When you get to the end of this section, what do people see? What are they recognizing? We're told that they stand in amazement at the majesty of God, at the power of Christ to do what the disciples could not do. I think it's the point. I think the reason that Jesus uses such strong language is not that he expects his disciples to have unlimited power. He's amazed at the fact that they think that they can do anything and there are still limitations to their power. Therefore, do what? Bring the child to me. So how does that work? How does that work out? How do we move from our limited power, our limited resources, our limited abilities into the infinite power of Christ? Well, this morning I would like to tell you I don't know. I don't know how that happens. I just know it does. I just know as a human race we reach our end. And what do we do when we get to the end of that? It's not a dead end the point of this passage Jesus is on mission bring the child to me I don't know how that works what do you do when you do your best when you fight the best that you can when you face the darkness within you and around you and it just gets darker What do you do when you boldly stand up in the face of the demon and you call him out and he laughs in your face and he casts you to the ground? He shatters your life and the lives around you. Hardly leave you. All I know is that when you reach that point, you're not at your end. This is the point there is a power in Christ that takes us beyond our abilities. And how that happens, I'm not sure. I've seen it happen for people who have traumatic backgrounds, pain and trauma beyond belief, who through years of reflection and counseling have found freedom. It's the power of Christ. And there are times... There are times where Jesus just speaks a word, where he just breaks in and he says, that's enough. Leave him alone. Get out of him. And he sets us free. I don't know how he does it. He does it however he wants to do it. But the point is, if we just see the mountains of our life through the eyes of our ability, what we miss is the power of Christ. There's a third movement, if you will, in the passage. And this one begins, verse 46, I believe. So after all of this, okay, after this amazing deliverance, there's a conversation that breaks out among the disciples and what's the topic of the conversation the power of christ what jesus had just accomplished the majesty of god the topic of conversation became hey among us who do you think's the greatest amazing i think it's another mountain See, this is the mountain that we face every day when we look into the mirror. It's the mountain of our own ego. It's the mountain of our own pride. It's the mountain that we're trying to ascend as we have this inner dialogue with ourselves that sometimes becomes an outward argument in which we try to convince ourselves I'm important. I matter. I make a difference. Look what I've achieved. Look what I'm doing. Surely my life has significance. But when we see the mountains through the eyes of our pride, what we miss is the liberating humility of Christ. If mountains are metaphor, this one might be Everest. It might be the biggest. Our preoccupation with ourselves continually trying to promote justify convince ourselves of our own importance of our own worth and rarely does it happen like this like we don't rarely do we start off a conversation with well you know that i'm better than you or i'm the greatest in this in this crowd we're much more subtle than that we do it in the way we tell our stories what we include, what we leave out. We do it through our social media on what we post and how we post it. Several weeks ago, I was in the home of a family, and I noticed that there was a water bottle that was sitting on the counter, and on the water water bottle was a sticker. And the sticker said, one, nine, three, four, one. And immediately I recognized that is the elevation of Mount Kilimanjaro. And so I asked them, oh, you've climbed Kilimanjaro. And the wife said, not exactly, not exactly. My family went to Tanzania, and my husband and my two children climbed Kilimanjaro. But as I was climbing that mountain, I developed high-altitude sickness, and I didn't finish. And then she looked at me and she said, I'm okay with that. See, we look at that, and we see three successes and one failure. We, th- we see three people who achieved greatness and one person who was weak. And she looked at me and she said, you know, it's in our weakness that we grow. It's in our failures that we really come to understand ourselves and our limitations. And I don't know about you, I hate that. I hate that because I'm preoccupied with me. I've got mountains to climb. I've got summits to conquer. But when you look at the mountains through the eyes of your pride, of my pride, what we miss is the liberating humility of Christ. There's something that Christ wants us to see. He wants to set us free from that. He wants to change the conversation. He wants to reorient the argument. This is not primarily ever about us. We want to be the poster child For the success, for the achievement, and what Jesus says, you don't need to be a poster child for anything. It's not about you. What I want you to be, what I'm inviting you to be, is not the poster child, just the child. Just be the child. He brings a child next to him. If you want to know greatness, Look at this child. Here's where you'll find greatness. What Jesus wants to remind us is that we have nothing to prove. You don't have anything you have to overcome, conquer. You don't have a name that you have to make for yourself. It doesn't matter what badges we wear, what um, stickers we slap on our water bottle. When we see the mountains through the eyes of our ability, we miss the power of Christ. When we see the mountains through the eyes of our pride, we miss the humility of Christ. There's one final movement in this narrative And it begins in verse 51, and it's where Jesus dials in. He focuses his direction, his energy, and it tells us that he, in some texts, resolutely uh, moves to Jerusalem, or that he sets his face towards Jerusalem. But Jesus clearly is on mission He has an intention. He's moving towards Jerusalem, and he's moving to Calvary. But notice that this trek, if you will, takes him through one last mountain. And this is the mountain where he has to pass through Samaria. See, our ideas, our abilities... Our pride, that's all about what's inside of us. But there are mountains that we encounter when we relate to one another, the mountain of relationship, and that's what's taking place in this text. Samaria was not just a geographic region. It was a division. It was a dividing point between peoples. It was one group of people that saw things one way and another group of people who saw them another way. And they were divided. And whenever they interacted, there were sparks. There was tension. And that's what's taking place in this passage. So that when Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem, has to go through Samaria, he has to encounter the mountain of relationships. The mountain of the relationships. Between Jews and Samaritans. And when he comes into their region or prepares to come into their region, and they find out that he, being a Jew, is on his way to Jerusalem, they say, Not with our help. We're not going to help you. And the human response, the, dis- the response of his disciples is, Oh, yeah. You're not going to help us? Well, Jesus, shall we destroy them? Shall we call down fire from heaven to consume them? There is a mountain of relationship, tension, struggle, and we experience it in our marriages, in our friend groups, in our extended family, in our nation, and in our world. We could spend some time here, and you all know we could. I don't think it's my place this morning to try to comment or commentate on the way that this tension is experienced in this country. We all just know that it is. But what I am, I think, able to do, is comment, it, comment on it in my own country. I, can, I cannot remember a time in the United States that is as divisive and divided as it is right now. It's not Jews and Samaritans. It's not, well, we're not going to help you or we're going to destroy you. I don't remember a time like this. Well, you're there. Well, I'm here. Well, these are my politics. Well, I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum from you. We see it in politics, we see it in economics, we see it in race relations, we see it in the way that you look at, the the very way that you want to care for your health. It's the mountain of division within relationships. How can you even begin to ascend that one? What hope do we have in that one? When we come to the end of this text, it simply tells us that when the disciples suggested that the answer was to destroy them, that Jesus rebukes them. He rebukes them. But there's a very interesting phrase that may be left out in your Bible If you're reading in the English, most likely you come to the end of verse 55 and it simply says that Jesus rebuked them and they went on to the next village. But in some English translations, there's a textual variant that appears in some manuscripts but not all, so they leave it out of many of the English translations, but some translations include it. And if it's not included in your main text, it's included in a footnote. And if you look down for the footnote for verse 55, you'll find this phrase, this textual variant. And it reads like this. It adds something to Jesus' rebuke. It says, He rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. See, part of what Jesus wants us to see is that we don't even understand ourselves. We don't even understand what's in our heart, what, is, what kind of spirit we are of. But make no mistake, the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives. He came to save them. To save them. And I don't know whether this textual variant is best kept in the main body of the text. I don't know that. But this is what I do know. The point that is making is absolutely the point. It is the truth nothing truer has been spoken. It is the gospel. It's the reason Jesus is on mission. It is the point. You do not know what kind of spirit you are of, but the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. It's the reason that he's on the mountain. It's the reason that he comes down from the mountain. It's the reason he's going to Jerusalem. It's the reason he's going to Calvary. Because he's not come to destroy. He's come to save. But when I look at the mountains through the eyes of my destructive spirit, what I miss is the redemptive heart of Christ. This is what Jesus wants us to see. He's on mission. He has an intention This is Jesus' own song of ascent. He is resolute on getting to Jerusalem and specifically to Calvary. His personal summit is taking him to a hill far away, to an old rugged cross. And maybe now is a really good time to return to that question from the introduction and ask Why? Why climb that mountain? We have an expression in English. And we say, well, that's not a mountain that I'm willing to die on. This, this is the mountain that Jesus... Is willing to die on. Why? Because he knows us. He did then, and he does now. He knows that left to ourselves, we're going to look at the mountains of our life, and we're going to lean into our ideas. We're going to look to our ability. We're going to promote our own pride. We're going to demonstrate our destructive spirits. On our own, we will destroy our lives and likely the lives of a few others around us. It's just the human condition. We cannot ascend the mountain of our human fallenness. Let me repeat that. We cannot ascend the mountain of our human fallenness. That's not bad news. In fact, it's it's quite good news because it brings us to the end of ourselves and introduces us to one who can help. He has come not to condemn, not to mock, not to destroy, but to save. In a word, he's come to help. When you look to the mountains, what do you see? I will lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from?